This is the Candeo Equipping Podcast. We're going to get started here. Um, yeah, man, thanks for coming out. I kid you not, almost every time we do something on a Sunday night, whether it's a class like this or a worship night or whatever, there's at some point I find myself like in the office over there standing uh, like next to the window and looking out and just seeing cars come in. I'm like, what are, why do people do this? Like, why are they coming to this? Like, uh, it just blows my mind. So, yeah, you guys are awesome. Um, so, yeah, my name is Jake, and I'm one of the elders here, and uh, I'm teaching this class along with Mark and uh, with Shane, which I'm bummed that uh, Shane's not here. Maybe he'll show up later. Um, just a couple of things uh, before we get started. So uh, I'm actually going to, I don't know that I printed off enough. Um, I'm going to refer to this. Uh, this is a paper that I wrote for a, a class that I was taking uh, this semester. So this is like seven weeks old. Um, but we're going to talk about priesthood uh, tonight, and we're specifically going to talk about Melchizedek. And one of the themes that's really important in understanding Melchizedek is to go all the way back uh, to really Genesis and understand priesthood. And it's something that I learned this semester that I had never considered, understood, um, had a category for was taking priesthood all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And so that's what this paper talks about. I'm going to reference it briefly, uh, but I printed off the whole thing, um, not because I'm trying to impress anybody. I wrote this only for a professor, and so uh, you just happen to be getting it. But, uh, but it was a really helpful category for me to understand uh, even priesthood in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, and it really began to make some connections in my own mind as related to how I, how I understood uh, the, the purpose and redemptive theme of the, of the Old Testament and, and ultimately of the scriptures itself. It just it locked into place a lot of things for me that uh, unfortunately hadn't been locked together before. So, um, so I'll just throw these your guys' as well. You don't have to read it now, obviously, but... Um, that's for your own kind of like bathroom reading? I don't know. <laughs> no? No? Okay, fine. Um, what, one, one other thing, uh, kind of by not really housekeeping, uh, I, I pubbed this in the Salt Leaders meeting this morning. So as we continue along with, with creating more equipping contacts for Candeo, uh, we're going to, like right now, we've got Gospel 101, we've got Gospel-Centered Marriage going on on Sunday mornings. Really, kind of the max capacity that, that I envisioned for the Sunday morning equippings would be uh, two classes during first service, two classes during second service. So we could theoretically have, a, have four classes going on on a Sunday morning at any given time, um, which I think would be great. I think to move towards that would be awesome. Uh, in the same way with Sunday nights, where we look at Sunday nights as a little bit more that time for, for a little bit more in-depth uh, topics or something like that, uh, something that's a little bit more narrow in its focus, it, like issues in Hebrews. Um, I, I could really see us doing two classes kind of like this at the same time on a Sunday night as well. Uh, We'll get there, kind of looking at that in the fall. But the next class that we're going to be doing on a Sunday night is going to be uh, called uh, the Biblical Teaching Lab. And we did something like this last, oh man, last spring, I think it was. With, and it was just for the students. And uh, basically at that point, it was like an eight or ten week class where it was basically teaching students how to study their Bible and then, and then how to craft a sermon, like basically a preaching lab. Uh, I've revamped it and have cut it down to six weeks, have kind of consolidated the content, made it, I, I think, a little bit more, um, made it shorter and a little bit more accessible, uh, and, so, and also renamed it Biblical Teaching Lab because uh, we also want that to be a context where we can train women to study their Bible and to teach in the context that, that are appropriate for women to, to do that as well. And I think Preaching Lab kind of scared a lot of, a lot of the salt students away. So... We kind of did a Trojan horse deal and renamed it and basically made it the same thing. So anyways, um, that class is going to start on March 24th. Now, because of the snow, that the first week overlaps with the last week of this class. Okay, so the beautiful thing about doing the podcast and recording everything is that if you're interested in taking the biblical teaching lab, but you're also like, but I'd also like to 
you know, finish this class too, right? I'm not omnipresent, so I can't be in that room while I'm here. Uh, still sign up. You'll still get the book. It comes with uh, Haddon Robinson's uh, biblical preaching and then a binder of additional course materials and uh, syllabus, stuff like that. Honestly, like, it's not that much reading. It's probably 15, 20 pages a week. You can read, you know, three pages before bed every night and you'll be fine. Um, but you can go online, sign up for that. It's 20 bucks. starts March 24th and goes through the end of April. And at the end of that class, there will be a... Um, uh, you'll be kind of like assigned a passage to read, to study, understand what it says, and then communicate it. Uh, communicate what you've learned from the text and how to apply it uh, to their life. Give kind of like a mini sermon, I guess. So anyways, uh, and that'll be Sunday nights at 8 o'clock, just like this. So that's my little plug. I'm trying as much as I can. It kind of snuck up on me, to be honest. And so, uh, so yeah, so I'm kind of like playing catch up and actually getting that out to people. So Anyways, any questions on that? <laughs> I can always look to Kyra for a question. Okay. So, like I said, tonight we're talking about priesthood and specifically Melchizedek. And where we're going to be is in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to be kind of bouncing around uh, a little bit because we need to understand some of the background of priesthood. And to be honest, like the more that I studied this, uh, the more that I realized, one, how little I knew. Two, how, how in-depth, kind of correspondingly, like how in-depth this topic actually is, right? Like I was going through these through my notes here uh, with Sarah this afternoon, and I was just like, man, I just feel like there's so many gaps. There's so, there, there, I feel like I left out more than I put in, right? It's just like, because this is something that, a topic that, uh, that seems inexhaustible. I mean, it's all throughout the Old Testament. Its implications are beautiful and sweeping. I mean, I, one of my professors wrote uh, his dissertation on the word hebel in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, like vanity, I mean, like 250 pages just on that word. You know, I'm like, yeah, and you could do the same thing probably for priest, probably for Melchizedek, probably for every word that I'll say tonight, you could probably do a whole dissertation, you know, on uh, minus the prepositions, you know. And so it's like, man, this is just going to be like a surface level. I mean, for being an in-depth class, like I, I feel like this is even going to be a surface level approach. But we're going to try. Uh, hopefully it'll make sense. And, and hopefully we'll have some time at the end for questions. And I'll just say right now, most of the questions I'm going to be like, hey, Mark, what do you think about that? And let Mark answer most of them. <laughs> so, um, so Shane, two weeks ago, uh, talked, w was given the topic of apostle and priesthood. Now, it was probably pretty optimistic to, to hand both of those and say, hey, here, you got an hour. You know, he gave me the rest of his notes and he only got through four of his, like, 16 pages. You know, so, was like, so he's like, here you go. I'm like, thanks, man. That's fantastic. So some of these notes are from Shane. Um, but like I said, if, if you missed Shane's, thing from two weeks ago, you can go back and listen to it on the podcast, Candeo Equipping Podcast. Uh, and that's also um, on, the, on the media tab on the website. So if you have an Android, I don't know how podcasts work on an Android, so just go to the website for that. Yeah, so, um, so kind of a few things by way of preface here. So we're, we're, we're looking at priesthood, we're specifically looking at the person of Melchizedek. And, and interestingly enough, the word priest in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word is kohen. That's K-O-H-E-N. And the first time that that word occurs is in Genesis 14. And what you see when you go to Genesis 14 is that the first time the word priest is used, it's used in reference to the short account of Melchizedek. And we're going to get, we're, we'll, we'll actually read that account, but I just thought it was so interesting where it's like, oh, wow, this really, you know, Cohen, this works because we're talking about priesthood and we're also talking about Melchizedek. And this is the first time that a priest was ever mentioned in the Old Testament. But before we jump into speaking specifically to the person of Melchizedek, we need to get uh, some form of semblance of a foundation of an understanding of Old Testament priesthood in general. All right. So... This is where that paper comes in uh, that you can read later, but um, essentially what, what you'll, if, if you read through that, what you'll see is that, um, that 
there seems to be a strong correlation between uh, what we'll see in the, the functions of the priest in the tabernacle and what Adam and Eve were to be in the garden, right? Like, I think for, for a long time, I, th- I think I just saw Adam and Eve as these kind of like, uh, like divinely appointed gardeners, you know, where it's just kind of like, okay, just, just make sure the garden looks nice and that weeds don't grow or whatever. I don't know. Like, what were they supposed to do? And it's like, and, yeah, and be, and be fruitful and multiply. multiply. It's like, yes, but they were also to fill the earth, which has an expansive nature to it, right? It wasn't just that Adam and Eve were placed in the garden to just tend the garden. Like, there was this expansive nature where it's like, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And and their function was almost as like these vice regents, right? Like, they were acting on behalf of somebody else. the, The purpose of Adam and Eve were to almost act like priests in the garden city of God, and that 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 they would expand that to fill the earth with the glory of God and facilitate the worship of God himself throughout the earth in the same exact way that priests were to do in as we get later on into the Old Testament. But obviously in Genesis 3, they, they like abdicated their role and sinned and got thrown out of the garden. And then that, that, like, uh, that priestly mantle was then given to the people of Israel, right? Like when we look into Exodus, um, I think it's like 19 or something like that, where uh, where God tells the people of Israel, like like I'm gonna make you a kingdom of priests, you know, like that was the purpose. And what they were doing was they were picking up the baton that was dropped by Adam and Eve, and they were to further that. But then Israel, like Adam and Eve, failed as well and dropped that baton. And then we see as we get into the New Testament, we won't get in there uh, too much, but um, that now that that is to be our role. Like, like God has written the law in the hearts of the believers, and like we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And so, um, so even priesthood, and it's really beautiful, honestly, uh, to look back where priesthood, uh, even the, the concepts and the themes of it are, can be traced all the way back to the Garden of Eden and, and the role that Adam and Eve were to play in the garden. So, so there's that fast forward. There, there is this sense where uh, we see in the Old Testament that um, that, that, that every, uh, every, I'll use that loosely, every man was his own priest. And so what, what that means is that, is that men themselves would be representatives before God uh, on behalf of their families, right? And we see that in, with Noah in Genesis 8, with Abraham in Genesis 12 and 13, with Isaac in Genesis 26, with Jacob in Genesis 31, and with Job in Job 1.5. And in all of these cases, uh, these, these, these patriarchs, right, are acting uh, in priestly ways, and it's on behalf of their own family or on behalf of their own lineage that they're offering sacrifices for the sins of their family and that they're, that they're playing that priestly role, right? Um, and I was really thankful that, that Shane pointed that out in his notes because... Uh, um, because I think it could be easy to forget that kind of like individual level, but uh, for our purpose, our, for our purposes tonight, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to focus in primarily on uh, on priests, uh, on the priesthood that was established after the giving of of the Mosaic Law. Okay, and so even though we could talk about how uh, uh, Abraham and Isaac and Job and Jacob all acted as priests in their own right. Uh, what we're going to mainly focus on is the Levitical priesthood, uh, which was implemented after the giving of the law to Moses um, in Exodus. And so, and that's, that's what's referred to as the Mosaic law uh, that's outlined in Exodus and in Numbers and Deuteronomies. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomies. There's one. Okay. Um, all right, so where did the Levitical priesthood come from and why did it begin in the first place, okay? So if you remember, Israel rescued from Egypt. This is just a side note. Israel's given, given the law after they were rescued. They weren't rescued because of their ability to fulfill the law because they hadn't had it yet, Right? And that, that's a really important thing as, as we think through, uh, even, and Mark may get into this because uh, he's talking about covenant next week. I don't know. You've got your own thing. You'll write it yourself. But uh, 
it, it is interesting. The, the, the role of the law in the life of the believer isn't as easy of a thing uh, that you might think because the role of the law in the life of an Israelite wasn't, um, uh, how, how would I say it? Uh, I'll just say it this way. I, I can forget that the order matters, right? The order matters. The, the order of being rescued and then being given uh, the covenant stipulations in the law. That's important because the rescuing wasn't contingent on the law fulfilling, but there was a very, uh, a very important role that the law had in that, that covenant relationship, right? So we can't just totally dispose with it. Like I think sometimes when we think law, we only think about the Pharisees, where it's like where, where there was a misunderstanding or an overemphasis of or a looking to the law for salvation. And it's easy for us to so connect those things that we just throw, throw the whole concept of the law out. We throw the baby out with the bathwater bath thinking, well, because the law was associated with the Pharisees, then, then all of a sudden the law itself must be bad. And it's like, no, what, what we see throughout the Old Testament and also throughout the New Testament is, this, is that the law was actually a gracious gift from God, Right? So anyways, so Levitical priesthood, where did it come from? So there were 12 tribes of Israel, right? And, and please don't fall asleep on me with this one. Uh, I just want to go through a little bit of the, of the genealogy here of how we got there, right? So uh, 12, tribes of, 12 tribes of Israel, one tribe was the tribe of Levi, all right? Now Levi had three sons, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari, three sons, Koath, one of those sons of Levi, had four sons, Izhar, Hebron, Uziel, and Amram, all right? So Levi, Kohath, Amram, and two of Amram's sons were Moses and Aaron, okay? And... You say, where, where did you get that, and why, why, why should I even care about that? We'll get there. Where I got that was 1 Chronicles 6, specifically in verses 3 and 16. But if you read the whole chapter of 1 Chronicles 6, Chronicles is usually, except for like Leviticus and Deuteronomy, if, you, if you're able to power your way through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and feel really good about your like year through the Bible plan, usually Chronicles is kind of like the death blow for that reading plan, right? Because it's like a whole lot of genealogies and you're like, how in the world? I'm never going to remember this and why does it matter? Okay, it's like, well, th this is part of why it matters and we'll get into more of why the genealogy matters, but the genealogies uh, are incredibly important because being able to trace your lineage like back was a really, really important thing. And we'll, we'll see how that was so important in terms of the, of the Levitical priesthood. Like it was really important that you could, uh, that there was a record and that you could show exactly where you came from because that affected your role, uh, what you could and couldn't do in the, in the community. Right, like it mattered uh, your family lineage as it related to your role and what you couldn't can do in the community. So, so Levi, if we just go down his lineage, uh, Moses and Aaron, like their great great grandfather was Levi, right? Which makes Moses and Aaron Levites, technically. So, they're rescued from Egypt. Moses is given the law in Exodus. Uh, is given the law at Mount Sinai, and that law is given from Exodus 19 to Exodus 23. And then we see the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle given in Exodus 25 through 27, chapters 25 through 27. So they're rescued, given the law, uh, the stipulations of the law, and then they're also given, uh, Moses is given like the, the blueprints, the, the plans for the tabernacle. That, that was to be uh, the place where God would once again dwell with his people, okay? Reference back to the Garden of Eden, right? It's so, I mean, if you really want to nerd out, you can just go and look at like, okay, how, how is the, how, as the tabernacle is set up, how does the setting up of the tabernacle relate to the Garden of Eden, it's really beautiful in the way that the tabernacle relates to the Garden of Eden. It's almost like a, uh, a symbolic recreation of the garden, a symbolic recreation of the original intention of creation where God dwelled, dwelt with his people. 
and, and he's looking to almost mirror that same situation. Now, obviously, sin has entered, and there, there's a whole, you know, another system that helps, like, helps mediate that. But it's almost like recreating that garden experience where God once again dwells with his people. Uh, so instructions for the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 27. And then here's where we get uh, the, the kind of... Um, we get some detail as far as, okay, what, what, uh, what was the priestly role? Like, what was specifically Aaron and his son's role in the tending of the tabernacle, right? So you have Exodus 28. Exodus 28 and 29 are uh, what kind of lay out um, what, this, what this priestly role looked like in the numbers, and we'll look at that. Uh, so Exodus 28 uh, it says, have your brother Aaron with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron and his son Nadab and Abihu, Eliezer and Ithamar. And so you got chapter 28 uh, laying out what the garments of the priests were to look like, right? Like, like their clothing even was, was very specific in, in displaying their set-apart nature, not just as, as chosen priests, but also as, as holy. Like they would have to do things to their garments as well to, to consecrate themselves before the Lord, before they would make sacrifices on behalf of the people. So chapter 28 lays out their priestly garments, and it's very specific, and they're set apart. And then chapter 29 uh, of Exodus is a chapter where, uh, where Aaron and his sons are consecrated uh, for the priestly office of the tabernacle as Israel's representatives before God. And that was where they would maintain the tabernacle and perform their priestly duties on behalf of themselves and of the people, right? And so that's an important thing because if you read through uh, the book of Leviticus and if you read through the the different kinds of laws or the different kinds of uh, sacrifices, what you're going to see is that, that the priests would first, within, the, within the, the description of these different kinds of sacrifices, they would first have to do something to purify themselves before they could ever go on to the next step of presenting a sacrifice on behalf of the people, okay? And that, that's important, so tuck that away. I know, I know I'm just fire-hosing here, and so Mark's, like, way better. He's got, like, like spectrums and lines and, and Amanda's incredible handwriting. <laughs> I got nothing. I'm just talking at you. So, uh, Numbers 3. Go ahead and turn to Numbers 3, because this, this describes, again, I'm just, I'm just hammering home this. Uh, we're only talking about priesthood here, Levitical priesthood in the Old Testament, okay? And I'm trying as, I'm trying as best I can to give, like, an overview, but a, a little bit of nuggets along the way, Okay. So Numbers 3, verses 5 through 13. Here's what that says. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be, he shall be put to death. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among, from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine." On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn of Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. And so what we see here is that the tribe of Levi, right, is set apart by God specifically for the purposes of, of maintaining the temple and performing the priestly duties. Like the, the, the office of the priest is specifically um, uh, ordained by God himself. Like, that wasn't just Moses' cool idea. That was God himself saying, like, I'm setting apart these specific people, these Levites, to be my priests. And, and, like, if, if you weren't a Levite, sorry, you have to pick a different, uh, different occupation, right? Like, it wasn't just kind of like, well, what, what do you want to be when you grow up, uh, Judah, from the tribe of Judah? Like, oh, I want to I be a Levite. It's like, sorry, you, 
or I want to be a priest. Sorry, you're not a Levite. Like, you just can't. That's, that's why it mattered that you could trace your lineage back, again, because where you came from determined how you could function within the community of the people of God. So it was really important for, it wasn't important, it was like, like you would die if you tried to be a priest and you weren't a Levite, right? Like, that was a big deal for God. So the Levites are set apart, uh, and we see these priestly duties of the priest being uh, the execution of different kinds of offerings uh, described in Leviticus. There's, there's primarily five offerings, burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, uh, purification and reparation offering. And then there was also uh, the offering on the Day of Atonement. Okay, and Paul talked about that a little bit this morning. Uh, the Day of Atonement, one time a year, where only the high priest, so like, like, like the, the number one priest, like there was only one high priest, uh, where only the high priest could enter the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, and he would present an offering both for his own sin and also for the sin of the people. Like both known and unknown sin, uh, on this one day of the year, uh, the high priest would go in to the Holy of Holies and, and present a sacrifice. And that, that's what Yom Kippur is. Like if, if you've ever lived... Uh, if you've, ever, if, you've, if you've ever known, like, practicing Jews, when we lived in Chicago, we, uh, Sarah worked in Evanston, which is, like, a really predominantly Jewish uh, uh, community. Like, she would get Yom Kippur off because they, would, they were observing this. Like, this is something that, that practicing Jews, like, observe to this day is this Day of Atonement, the, the celebration of that. Um, and if you're curious, it's October 8th this year, and... Yeah, there's a reason for that, the Hebrew versus Gregorian calendar, stuff like that. But October 8th, 2019. So if you have any Jewish friends, wish them a happy Yom Kippur and just be nice, okay? And so so anyway, so why talk about all of this, okay? And, there, and like I said, there's a whole lot. We, we could have done a whole like semester on just that part, on just the Levitical priesthood, okay? Well, it's because like Shane talked about uh, pretty briefly two weeks ago is that Jesus is described not just as a high priest, but as a great high priest, right? Like a higher high priest. And what's so interesting in the book of Hebrews is that uh, basically from, from chapter three through chapter 13, with the exception of three chapters, in every chapter, Jesus, Jesus's role as a high priest will be mentioned. In every chapter, except for chapter four, 11, and 12. But other than that, every chapter from basically here, like from this morning till August, is going to have a reference to Jesus being a high priest. And for a Jewish audience, which was the original audience of the book of Hebrews, uh, that would have totally blown their mind. And and it would have been kind of confusing. And here's why. And again, I'm I'm just like, yeah, fire hosing you down here. So... Uh, 2 Samuel 7, and this is why the podcast is great too. You can go back and listen to this uh, a little slower, but we're just going to bust through this. 2 Samuel 7 gives language that would indicate that God's Messiah would be, would come from the household of David, okay? Like King David, like the kingly line of David. 2 Samuel 7 talks about that. Uh, Isaiah 11 uh, says a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, which was David's father, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. And so that's an indication of the, of the coming Messiah was going to be an offspring of, of David, the, the stump of Jesse, who was David's father. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6, uh, says this, Look, the days are coming, this is the Lord's declaration, when I will raise up a righteous branch for David... He will, reign, he will reign wisely as king and administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. Our Lord, which Lord there, if you ever see in, uh, in, your, in your Bible, uh, Lord capitalized, particularly in the Old Testament, that's, that, that's Yahweh, right? Like not capitalized is generally the word Elohim, which is kind of the, uh, the, the generic name of God. You could say maybe the impersonal name of God, whereas Yahweh is the personal name of God. Man, again, Genesis 1 and 2 is really beautiful in how that works. But um, where the Lord, Yahweh, is our righteousness. And so, so the reason why I point that out is that it's clear throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament that the Messiah that Israel was waiting for would come from the line of David. And you say, big deal. 
Like, okay, so what? So the Davidic line is a kingly line. Awesome. Like, that's great. Like, Jesus is king. Sure. What? Like, why is that a big deal? Well, if you go to Matthew 1, and you can actually turn to Matthew 1. Some of you just gave up, and I don't blame you for it. <laughs> uh, da, da, da. This is why genealogies are important. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> All right. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, or Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, great, go, go down to uh, verse six. Uh, let's see, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Uh, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered, Jesse fathered King David. Go down to verse 15. Um, again, this is just the, the lineage of, of Jesus. Uh, Eliad fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Uh, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now, why in the world, does that matter, all right? So David is the great, 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 great grandson of Judah. And Jesus is the great, times like 26, grandson of David, which I wasn't, I was never a math guy, but I could understand that, like, that whole if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C thing, right? It's like, wait, so that means that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. And this is reaffirmed in Romans 1. Paul affirms uh, Jesus' genealogy as being from the line of David, right? So we got halfway there ish. And then if you look at Revelation 5, verses 4 through 5, it references Jesus as the Lion of Judah. So Jesus is, is from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. But if you remember, as, as we looked, like high priests could only be chosen from priests who are of the tribe of Levi. But Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. And so how in the world could he be a priest, let alone a high priest, let alone a great high priest, if he was from the tribe of Judah? Because, and so th that, that's why this is such a big deal. That, that's why Melchizedek is such a big deal. That's why understanding who Melchizedek is is such a big deal. Because in order for Jesus to be a great high priest, it was necessary that he would come from a line altogether different and ultimately greater than the, the Levitical priesthood. Because to a Jewish audience, which was Hebrews, to, to the Hebrews, like for them to hear that Jesus is a great high priest and also know that he's from the tribe of Judah, it's like, okay, these, these two things don't go together. Like how in the world can that be true of him? All right? And so that, that's just all setting up the backdrop here as to why Melchizedek is a big deal. And so we're going to look at that right now. Man, I can understand why Shane like only got through four pages of notes. Man. This is great. Okay. I'm having fun. Maybe you're not. <laughs> um, like I said, uh, uh, priest is mentioned first in Genesis uh, 14. Melchizedek is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis 14, uh, verses 17 through 20. And then he's, he's referenced one other time in Psalm 110, verse 4. That's it. Like, that's all you get from Melchizedek in the Old Testament. But then he's mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. And so you've got, what, five verses worth-ish in the Old Testament. And then, and then you've got Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. 5 verse 10, 6 verse 20, 7 verse 1, 7 verse 10, 7 verse 11, 7 verse 15, 7 verse 17 in the book of Hebrews. 
And so chapter 7 specifically, that, that's where we'll probably, that's where we'll camp out for the most part in talking about Melchizedek. Chapter 7 is the most airtime that Melchizedek gets in the whole Bible. And he's also the linchpin of the author's argument concerning Jesus' high priestly role. So let's, let's skip on over here to Genesis chapter 14, since this is the first time, well, this is the first time that priest is mentioned, but this is the first time Melchizedek is mentioned as well. <clears throat> Genesis 14. Verses 17 through 20. All right. So a little backdrop here. This is like way reductionistic. Okay. So basically, uh, Lot gets into a a bit of a problem, and Abram, Abraham, goes to rescue him. Okay. So Abraham wins the battle, and it's coming back, and that's where we pick up here. In Exodus 14, Exodus, Genesis 14, uh, verse 17. After Abram returned from defeating, uh, whew, okay, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the, in the Shaveh Valley, that is the king's valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's it. (laughs) That's what we get, okay, from uh, Genesis 14. All right, fast forward here to Hebrews chapter 7. All right. And now we get the author of Hebrews, both recounting of this event and interpretation of it, okay? So chapter 7, verses uh, 1 through 9 here. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abram and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, uh, scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who received a tenth, was paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And so eight things that we can know about Melchizedek just from verses, uh, just from chapter seven, verses one through three, eight things. And if you read it, you, like this isn't novel, right? I can just read. So that's where these observations came from. So eight things. He was the king of Salem. He was the priest of God most high. And you can kind of follow the line here. His name means king of righteousness. He was the king of Salem, which means king of, king of peace. Number five, he's without father or mother. Number six, he's without genealogy. Number seven, he's without beginning of days or end of life. And number eight, he is like the son of, like, like the son of God who remains a priest forever. And you can get that just from, just from reading through eight things in three verses that we know about the person of Melchizedek. Something that's interesting here is that Melchizedek's name is, is pretty strange. Like, kind of like when, I mean, I love the phrase, I found, found myself using it, where Shane, uh, where Shane said, like, there were some things they could get for free, right? Like, 
there's some things that we don't get for free. And one of the things that we don't get for free is that, uh, is that we don't speak Hebrew. Or at least most, maybe one of you does. Does anyone speak Hebrew? Mark, come on. Okay. So Melchizedek's name is strange because the, word, the, the, the Hebrew word for a righteous person in the Old Testament is Zedekah. And the Hebrew word for king is Melech. And so the name of Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness, which is what the, which is why the author of Hebrews uh, interprets his name as meaning that, because that's literally what his name means. And he's identified as the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. And, and one, of the, one of the things, again, if you want to nerd out quite a bit, like try to, like try to figure out, okay, what, like Salem, what, what is this referring to? Is it referring to um, uh, the, uh, another town that was probably during the New Testament times, uh, Salem, but S-A-L-I-M? Is it referring to that? Uh, is, it re- is it referring to Jerusalem? Like which was orig- which was originally referenced to as uh, a city of bread, but then eventually evolved to also mean like a city of peace. So when it talks about Melchizedek being a uh, king of peace, like is is that what it's talking about? Uh, is it possible? And I, again, some of this stuff is speculative, and so you can't like be super dogmatic about it. But it's like, is it possible that Melchizedek is being identified as an ancient king of the city, uh, of which would eventually become David's city? which is Jerusalem. Like, is, is Melchizedek an ancient king of Jerusalem? It's possible, as we look at uh, him being a king of Salem. Uh, another thing that, was, that, that, is, that is odd about the person of Melchizedek is that he's both a priest and a king, right? Because the combination of these two offices for an Israelite, uh, the combination was something that would be off-limits, like you couldn't be both a king and a priest, right? And we know this from 1 Samuel chapter 13, where Saul, if you go back and read that, where Saul is waiting for Samuel to come to offer, to offer the sacrifice. Samuel's taking his sweet time and, uh, and is late, basically. He doesn't get there in the time that he said he would be there. So Saul, being impatient, uh, takes the takes this, uh, the offerings from the people, the sacrifices of the people, offers up the sacrifices himself. He is the king at the time, but he, he jumps in to fulfill the priestly duty, right? And then Samuel, if you read it, it's like, it's like immediately after he finishes the sacrifice, Samuel comes and is like, what are you doing? Like, you could have been a great king, but now your kingdom will go to somebody else. Like, Saul lost his kingdom because he tried to function as both a king and a priest. And so this person of Melchizedek, of Melchizedek identified as both a king and a priest, uh, would, have, would have made a Hebrew audience incredibly interested as to what in the world is this kind of person. Not only that he would function this way, but that it seems like, uh, that, like that he has the favor of God in, in having this function at the same time. Um, Man, I'm going to skip the without beginning of days nor end of life. There, there's several views on that. Uh, uh, I say the, pro- the, the most plausible ones, at least the ones that would make the most sense, would uh, either be that this is a this is a pre-incarnate uh, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, uh, uh, like a Christophany, um, or it could be uh, typological in in that sense where it's not. Christ himself, but he typifies Christ. Uh, or it could be simply a Canaanite king-priest of Salem who is a worshiper of the true God. <clears throat> and there's five other theories as to uh, uh, who he is. Like, does he have divine nature, stuff like that. I, I don't know quite exactly how to sift through all that. What I do know <clears throat> is that uh, Melchizedek is no less than a type of Christ in the Old Testament because he is interpreted as a type of Christ through uh, Hebrews 7, as we see, okay? All right. Um, I'm going to skip that genealogy part. Got to fly, got to fly. Okay. So, Jake, was this all just this description of Melchizedek and, and all this to show that 
he didn't come from the tribe of Levi, but he was still able to be a high priest without this? Yeah, so that so where I kind of land on who Melchizedek is, because him not having a, a beginning of days or end of life or no father or mother, uh, pe- people who think that Melchizedek is, is of a divine nature interpret those verses as like, well, he didn't have a mother, didn't have a father, uh, he must not be human, right? That, that's kind of the basis, you know. Uh, the way that I think that it's going is that... Uh, it's kind of more like what you said. The, the reason for no genealogy for Melchizedek uh, is to show, um, yeah, that he, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. Like, that wasn't a possibility even at that point. Um, this was pre-Levi, right? Like, Levi was still uh, in the loins, you could say, of, of Abraham. And so, um, so I think it was more that to, to highlight how disconnected his role was from, uh, from his genealogy. I think that's, that's why... It talks about him in chapter seven there, like would that. Would you say Christ then would be a, a fulfillment of Melchizedek? Oh, certainly, yeah, yeah. It, and, I, and I think that's what uh, what chapter seven, what uh, the author of Hebrews is trying to say. It, and even in uh, in Psalm one ten, it uh, says, "You are priests. You are priests forever, according to the order of Melchizedek." And so, what Scripture is saying is like the the type of priest that Jesus is is according to the order of Melchizedek, not according to the order um, of, of Aaron, you could say. Like, he, he is a Melchizedekian priest, not a Levitical one. And then, sorry, um, so then this was important because uh, that this was a Jewish audience. Mm-hmm. They needed to know why Christ was from the lineage of David and not Levi. Yeah, yeah, because... Because for them, they're like, well, he can't be a priest. He's not from Levi. It's like he's actually a priest according to Melchizedek who also wasn't from the tribe of Levi because there was no tribe of Levi. Like this is, a, this is an entirely different kind of priesthood. And so, and this is where, this is where it gets super interesting, okay? I'm gonna, oh, and I've got this somewhere down here. <coughs> um. Because essentially what is happening here is now that, and Mark may get into this when he talks about covenant, uh, now that the author has, has like elevated um, Jesus above the Levitical priesthood, he's, he's not only elevated him above Moses, but he's also elevated him above Abraham. Because in the account, uh, in Genesis 14 and the retelling and interpretation of it in Hebrews 7, it makes it very clear. It's in, uh, it's in verse 7. So Hebrews 7, uh, verse 7. So if you remember, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. And the author of Hebrews interprets that, saying, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the, by the superior. So what he's saying is, is that Melchizedek was also, in that instance, above Abraham because he's blessing Abraham and Abraham's receiving a blessing and Abraham is, is, is handing up a tithe to him. This is before t- the tithe was even invented, right? Like, but everything was distinguishing this role of like, like Melchizedek is above Abraham as well. In this instance, and so Jesus is also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, which means that he's he's above Abraham, or he's above Moses, and he's also above Abraham, which could which could have some interesting covenantal implications, I'm sure, which Mark knows way more about than I do. Um, but yeah, so like so for a Jewish audience, like again, the book of Hebrews is is doing everything he can to to not to not diminish Moses, not diminish Abraham. It's it's not. He's not elevating Christ by pushing all these things down. What he's doing is like he's keeping these things high because it it only makes Christ higher, right? So it's not like trash talking Moses or air throwing him out the window, like like not a big deal. It's like no no no, like this was a big deal. But Christ is supreme over everything, including Abraham, which was like like top dog, right? Like like he was the guy when it came to the, to the Israelites. But Jesus, because he's according to the order of Melchizedek, is above, the, is above the Levitical priesthood, above Moses himself, and also above Abraham. 
which is incredibly important because, again, he wasn't from the tribe of Levi. So the very thing that could, in the mind of a Hebrew, disqualify Jesus from the priesthood uh, elevated him so, so much higher than, than even just priesthood. It was also, uh, it elevated him in like, in, in, in covenantal kind of ways, right? Which, which we'll get into in, uh, in chapter eight and Mark will get into next week, the, the old covenant and the new covenant. And that, that's why you, you could really, uh, you could really exchange the word testament for covenant. I mean, they're, they're essentially the same thing. We just use testament because we're used to it. But you could say the first half of your Bible is the old covenant. The second half of your Bible is the new covenant, which is why it's really important that we have a high view of the Old Testament. Like, it's not like, well, let's just kind of stay in the New Testament because it's easier to understand and it's more applicable and uh, it's not as antiquated and we don't really need to understand all that. I, I know there's some, some preachers out there who kind of espouse this kind of like, Let's stick mainly in the New Testament. It's like, okay, maybe you could do that, and you could still read the New Testament without the Old Testament. You could get some stuff out of it, but it would be like watching your television in black and white and in standard definition. Like, you're not going to understand the beauty of the New Covenant without the backdrop of the Old Covenant, like the overwhelming backdrop of the Old Covenant, like holding this thing up. Like, we need the Old Testament. And that's one of the things that I've, I've been so jealous of, both for myself, for my family, uh, and for the people that we disciple is like, like we got to get into the Old Testament because there's no way we're going we're gonna to understand and, and our worship will be deficient without the Old Testament. Like, and our Savior will be diminished without the Old Testament. Like, that is the foundation of everything that we read in the New Testament. Like, like the beauty of the, of the New Testament is, is neutered without the Old Testament. Like, that is so, so vitally important. So, yeah. Anyways, that was kind of a... A rant, I guess, but um, okay. So four minutes. I'm on my last page. Perfect. I skipped a lot. Uh, in summary, so what? Why spend all this time talking about priesthood? Jesus as a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. <coughs> The author is straining to show the legitimacy of Jesus as a priest, though he was not from Levi, but from Judah. And that it's precisely because of this fact that he is, in fact, a greater priest according to a greater order in order to fulfill a greater purpose. I'll say that again. The author is straining to show the legitimacy of Jesus as a priest, even though he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah, and it's precisely because of this fact, it's precisely because he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, that Jesus is in fact a greater priest according to a greater order in order to fulfill a greater purpose. And so, and, and this is where, and this kind of springboards into next week for chapter eight. Like chapter eight starts off, man, and, and read the rest of chapter seven. It, it basically explains everything I just said, like in... Uh, Holy Spirit-inspired words, so it's better, right? But chapter 8, after all this talk about Melchizedek, says, now the main point of what is being said is this. Summary statement, like why in the world did I just say chapter 7? We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. The whole reason for this explanation of Melchizedek is to show precisely what kind of high priest Jesus is. That he was able to enter the heavenly tabernacle in full sufficiency and offer sacrifices not for himself because he was sinless, but for those for whom he was representing before the Father. And in order for him to be that kind of a priest, he had to be according to the order of Melchizedek and not according to the Levitical priesthood. Because Levitical priests offered sacrifices for themselves every time. So, um, Kyra, do you have any questions? And <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I know that was a lot. Like, and like I said, there, I, I felt like I was like skimming the surface and... I was in a lot of ways and, and skipping a lot and like 
missing a lot and throwing a lot. Like, there's just so much there. It's so beautiful. Like, this really, for me, honestly, in preparing for this, was just a true testimony of, like, how rich and deep and wide and vast and beautiful the Word of God is. Like, like you, you, could, you could spend a lifetime and be in, in delight the whole time just trying to understand this, right? And it's like, and we got, we got a thousand more pages, you know? Like, we got a hundred, you know, however many more chapters it is, you know, like, it, the, the riches of God's word uh, are inexhaustible. So, yeah. Does anyone have, have a quick question maybe I can answer? Yeah. What are some weaknesses or arguments against the idea that Melchizedek could be a, a pre-New Testament appearance of Christ? We, uh... Okay, against the argument that Melchizedek is, yeah. Uh, The question was, what what are arguments against Melchizedek being uh, a Christophany, basically, like a pre-incarnate revelation of Christ? Maybe you've got a good answer. Honestly, for a long time, I thought it was. So I lean towards... Mm -hmm. uh, chapter 7, verse 15, and this becomes clear, and another priest like Melchizedek appears, it's not saying that he is, and that's why I think it's the type. Yeah. Yeah. Say what? Yeah, so uh, Melchizedek, Jesus is in the order of. Yeah, he's in the order of, he's like, he's not saying this is a reappearance of uh, Melchizedek. It's saying that he's like, so it's pointing to a Mm -hmm. type and a substance. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a difference between a Christophany, which is, which would be Christ Himself. Uh, you you kind of see that in a, like the angel of the Lord at times, um, and, and a typology, which, which would be more this, in my opinion, as well. Where this, like this was a king who had a kingdom. Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like you know, you know, having land and servants and being a kingdom. Right. Sound like a yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jim. Parker's note here on this. The ancient Syriac Prasada gives a more accurate translation of that word. No father, no mother. It says, whose father and mother are not written in genealogies. Mm, yep. That kind of opens it all up. They're so heavy in the genealogies. Yeah. He's saying you don't have the genealogy here. Mm-hmm. He says, no record existed of Melchizedek's birth or death. This is prior contrast to the details of Aaron's death, which is just a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Translation kind of helps. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, a real person, yeah. Yeah. Just because we don't have all the details about his life and death or genealogy. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. I can't remember where I read it, but at one point I thought I read that if Jesus would have been a priest underneath the Levi genealogy, that it couldn't have happened because there was a curse. Was that... And I heard the word was curse. And my thinking was, is that because they were man? They had to first um, give a sin offering for their own sins, mm-hmm. which he was sinless, so therefore he couldn't fall underneath that line? Sure, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. That, that was true of the Levitical priests, where clearly they were men, and they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins before, this, before they offered for the sins of the people. Um, I'm not quite sure uh, that that necessarily, um, it was indicative of the Levitical priesthood precisely because it was humans, right? right. I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily why he wouldn't, couldn't have been under the Levitical priesthood, I guess, like, because that, that would have meant that he would have had to have sin, you know? Um, I, I do think there, there is something to be said probably about uh, him not being under the, the Levitical priesthood uh, then elevates him above uh, both the priesthood and the, the Mosaic law that necessitated that priesthood and then ultimately above Abraham, like as we kind of saw in there too. Yeah. Yeah. Just an interesting fact. You read chapter 8, verse 1. I suppose Mark will get to this, but it says the point of what we're saying is this. We, do, we have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne. It's interesting. There's no chairs in the tabernacle. Yeah. They never sat down. Their work was never finished. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love that you. I love that you said that, Jim, because, oh, uh, I put that right here. Yeah, Jesus sat down like yeah. once, 
for all, finished, done. Like drop the mic, yeah. That's all. Thank, thanks for pointing that out. That's huge. That is huge. Yeah. So next week we got Marcus Aurelius over here, and uh, we're talking about the old covenant and the new covenant. Um, and I'm gonna miss next week, and I'm really bummed. So I'm gonna have to listen to the podcast because. I need to learn more about what Mark's going to talk about. So, yeah, cool. Well, once again, um, if you're interested in the uh, Biblical Teaching Lab, kandeochurch.com, events, scroll down. You can sign up there. Uh, otherwise, thanks for coming tonight. This was, this was fun for me. Uh, hopefully some of it's stuck. We'll see you next week.